Jugwich and welcome back to the study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to the beloved physician Saint Luke. Today at long last we will finally finish the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now I'm not sure which part this is in the series. I think it's after part 12 but maybe before part 15. Um, I'm not sure. But over the last few weeks we have studied the word of God as revealed in the first chapter of Luke and during that time we have looked at many different topics. In the last sermon we looked at the gospel, the, uh, the topic of the gospel. Today we will look at, not at the gospel but rather at a gospel or to be a bit more specific we will we will be looking at a false gospel known as the prosperity gospel and how the life of john the baptist which is what you know is sort of in this text in luke 180 uh, disproves a lot of prosperity teachings in the last few sermons, I read all of Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 80. Then I went back and reread the specific passages we would be, uh, or we were going to study that day. Today, I'm going to do something a bit similar, but also a bit different. I'm going to read the entire first chapter of Luke and then focus on verse 80. I suppose you could say this is sort of a, a victory lap, if you will. One down, 23 more to go, that sort of a thing. Anyway, enough of that. Let's just get into it. So here is Luke chapter 1, the full way through, the English Standard Version, the ESV. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, uh, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angels answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place 
because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he had kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, was sent from God, sorry, um, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord, will gi the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her also who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel de uh, departed from her. Mary visits Elizabeth. Oh, sorry, that's just the chapter title heading thing. Uh, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, or in Judah. And she entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of the Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken of her from the Lord. Mary's, uh, sorry. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And this is the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The birth, um, now, the, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father but his mother answered no he should be called John and they said to her none of your relatives is called by this name and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote down his name is John and they all wondered 
And immediately his mouth opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, a blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbours. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance of Israel. So we're about nine minutes in now, and I spent most of that time, I'd say eight and a half, or seven and a half minutes, eight minutes, just reading the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. So I hope that shows, I suppose, how dedicated he was to detail and how, art, uh, I guess, articulous, not articulous, how meticulous, meticulous, that's the word, how meticulous he was in trying to record the details, record the historical narrative, get it right, as we, you know, heard in the first few verses, um, he was dedicating this to Theophilus and he wanted to make sure that he was recording everything properly and historically accurately. And, you know, just by the sheer amount of time it takes to read the first chapter, I think that is really perfectly demonstrated. And so now, with all that in mind, I'll go back and I'll read the verse we're focusing on today, and then we'll get into it. So Luke chapter 1, verse 18. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So, in this verse we see that once John had grown into a man, he went off into the wilderness. This, of course, poses a serious problem to prosperity theology. You see, Jesus says that John was the greatest man who ever lived. Surely, if he was so good, God would grant him the prosperity he supposedly promises people, right? Well, this leads me into three points I want to talk about. And these three points sort of lead into each other. Point one leads to point two, which leads to point three. So point one is the false promises of the false gospel. Point two is the love of the world. And point three is theological liberalism or an abandonment of those truths which are so plainly in scripture and so often necessary to the faith not always but often so let's have a look at these three first of all false promises of a false gospel we know that these promises that they give us are false people have been promising things making false promises all the time they're spiritual snake oil salesmen we look at benny hinn for example, there was a documentary done about the prosperity gospel. I'm not sure if it was about him specifically, but there was at least a section that really did focus in on him, where there was this young child, really young child, and his parents and him had come over from India to get him's help in 
saving the child. And so Heenan brought the child up in front of the massive audience and said, expect the miracle, you know, all that nonsense that he says, expect the miracle, God's going to touch you, God's going to bless you, all that stuff. And uh, unfortunately, a few weeks later, the child would, uh, the child died. You know, he was about 10 or something. And so Heenan promised the family that the child would be okay. Of course, slipping them a bit of, you know, information saying, hey, if you, if you give me money, it'll probably, it'll probably help, you know, sow seed, that sort of a thing. And the family, unfortunately, bought it, spending all this money, giving it to Benny Hinn, rather than going to a hospital and spending it on their child. Um, and so, well, the child died, and then Hinn goes up to the, I think, to the father, and he says, you know, this is... A generational curse basically saying it's not my fault it's either your fault or your your father's fault because generational curses according to him can last up to two or three generations so either this guy did something or his dad did something which is why his son is now dead and why the blessing didn't work um he's just pure nonsense obviously pure 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 nonsense uh because he promised the child would live and then the child died but he didn't care he got his money uh, he just said, yeah, well, it's, it's your fault. And that's, of course, the, the false um, reasoning of the prosperity gospel. You know, they give, the, you know, they, they give these promises. The prosperity preacher says, oh, I'm going to heal your child through the power of God. Or I'm going to heal you through the power of God. And then the person isn't healed. And they said, well, it's not my fault. It can't be God's fault. I guess it must be your fault. Give me more money. And that's essentially uh, a less subtle version what i've just said is basically a less subtle version of what they teach it's pretty much exactly what they teach just without all the subtlety and the, the nonsense the wishy-washy stuff around it but that's basically what they teach give me your money and god will heal you have faith and god will heal you if you don't give me enough money or you don't have enough faith god won't heal you in which case if you're still alive you better have more faith and better give me more money and and, and that's really that's really the main promise of the prosperity so-called gospel. It's not really a gospel at all. It is a false gospel because it, you know, it's false because it promises something that we are not actually promised. But it's also a false gospel because it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think John the Baptist really hammers that home with his life. Like I said, John was the greatest man who ever lived. He lived in the woods. He lived in the wilderness. His diet was whatever he could find lying about the place that didn't look like it would kill him oh i'm hungry that looks like it's not poisonous i'll have that that was his, that was his diet he didn't live on the the fine gourmet meals he certainly didn't drive around in a sports car or live in a fancy mansion or anything else like that he slept on whatever part of the ground happened to look the most comfortable um, and that's just me assuming he did he slept wherever he liked i'm assuming he picked the most comfortable part of the ground Maybe he didn't, I don't know. But he certainly didn't have fancy beds and these amazing hotel rooms, wherever he went to. Um, and that's not to say we have to follow his example. That's not to say we have to live in poverty. People go on about the, the poverty gospel as well, um, that we, we have to be poor. That's not true. God will bless people however much he wants to bless them. Maybe he'll make you prosperous. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll make you live in poverty. We don't know his will for our lives. We just got to trust him through whatever he does. Obviously, if we work hard, 
you know, we can make something of ourselves. If we work hard, we can prosper. God can bless those who work hard. Um, Paul says, if a man does not work, neither shall he eat. I imagine that can also be flipped around. If a man works really hard, does a really good job, really puts the work in, he can see great benefits from that. But working hard is not the same thing as giving a bit of money to the local preacher. Um, but yeah, John the Baptist did not live the prosperity gospel lifestyle and he's supposedly one of the greatest men who ever lived. I can't imagine. Obviously, we know he struggled with doubt, but that didn't stop him from being the greatest man who ever lived. So his faith was definitely very strong. He had moments of doubt, absolutely. But I imagine overall his faith was quite strong. Um, but he didn't have any of the prosperity. He didn't have the fanciest camel or the fanciest mule or the fanciest horse or whatever. He walked everywhere he went. He ate what he could find. He wore what he could find but not eat. You know, if he found, if he found something, it's like, well, I can't eat that, but I can make it into a garment. And then he wore it. He wore camel skins. He ate locust, I believe. He ate insects, all that sort of thing. He did not have the luxurious sort of a, a lifestyle. So when prosperity preachers promise you that, they're lying. Or at the very least, there's no such thing as a prosperity preacher who's going to tell you the truth. Either they're going to be lying because they'll tell you something that's not true and know it's not true, but want to convince you that it's true, or they're wrong because they themselves have bought into the scam and are now both victims of it, but also active participants of it, actively peddling it. So, but because there is a false gospel, it means that it's not centered around a love for God. The true gospel, following the true gospel, is of course centered around a love for God. But that leads me into my second point. The false gospel is not centered around a love for God. It's primarily centered around a love for the self. I want to believe this because I want to get rich. I want to be healthy. I want to be wealthy. Whereas John loved God and gave up pretty much all worldly pleasures, only having ba basic needs like clothes and food and so on. And even then he had the lowest possible standard of those basic needs. He loved God and he was God-centered, so he didn't mind living that lifestyle. But this false gospel... Is focused on the self. There's no love for God. Because there's no love for God, there's love for self, there's love for the world. And we see this all the time. We see this with um, pastors like Kenneth Copeland, supposed pastors like Kenneth Copeland, who has multiple jets. And he, he said about one of his jets, well, I just had to buy it because the fellow I was buying it off of, he made it so cheap. It was only a few million instead of a few million plus a few more million or whatever it was. Wasting the money that he's been donated, that he's made from his books on private jets. And a lot of his um, justification is he doesn't want to get in public airplanes because it's a long tube of demons. Which surely that should be every reason, if he truly is a, a Christian preacher, that should be every reason for him to take public transport on um, public airplanes so that he can go and preach to these people and convince them. Oh, but no, it's it's... There's unbelievers there, and if there's anywhere Christians are commanded not to go, it's where the unbelievers are. That I'm being sarcastic, of course. It's it's ridiculous. It's a it's a nonsense thing. It's a nonsense justification for that lifestyle. That idea of 
well the plane was only it, it was still a few million but it, it wasn't as many millions and the alternative is I might have to do my job and evangelize um, therefore I'm justified in getting this plane it's 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 obviously completely nonsense and and, and, and that's the sort of thing you see they, they don't love other people they don't love the people of the world they love the world they don't love the people of the world enough to go and preach the gospel to them they love the world the pleasures of the world they love themselves they love what they can get out of it and that leads to the third point theological liberalism and we see this in a few different ways because they love the world and they don't love god they want to be good with the world and they don't want to be good with god and there's sort of a spectrum to this. You have on the more conservative side, surprisingly, people like Joel Osteen, who will still say uh, abortion is wrong, homosexuality is wrong, but he'll do it through gritted teeth. So while he's technically correct, you can tell he doesn't like that he has to say it. He does feel the obligation to say it, but he, 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 when, when he's asked anyway, he, he won't ever say it himself unprompted, not in a sermon anyway or anything like that, but when asked, he will give... Um, close to biblical answer true gritted teeth and i say close to biblical because it's never quite biblical now you know if you're in a movement with joel osteen and joel osteen is one of the closest people to the bible and he's closer to preaching biblical truth than you were you know you've messed up but the truth is that a lot of the people in that movement have moved away from the more controversial parts of christianity for example T.D. Jakes used to um, affirm the biblical view of marriage. Now, uh, a few years ago, I believe, when asked his view on homosexuality, he said it's, it's evolved and evolving. It's changing. It's moving away. It's moving, in reality, with the culture as it becomes less and less societally acceptable to believe what the Bible teaches. He's moving with society rather than staying with the Bible. And so it's evolving away from the Bible towards society. And you see as well with um, Rick Warren, who was the um, former leader of Saddleback Church, now affirms women in the ministry. And of course, women have a, have a place in evangelism. Women have a place in preaching. They do not have a place in pastorship, in the pastoral role. They are not to be elders, as Tim, as Paul said to Timothy. They are not to be elders. They are not to preach over men. They can preach over women and children, but not men. And preaching over women and children is, of course, still a massive privilege. It's a privilege to preach to anybody. But they cannot preach to men. That's very clear in the Bible, but it's unpopular. And because Rick Warren has sort of seemingly slowly moving away from certain aspects of traditional christianity whereas i think a few years ago he would have been fair like he would have maybe not been the greatest teacher you might not have ever recommended him to anybody but a few years ago you did these localist teachings and go eh, some stuff i disagree with some stuff i agree with overall i'd say he's grand and he's sort of in that area from what i've seen of him from a few years ago to now where he's moving more and more towards prosperity gospel and therefore towards theological liberalism to where he's now denying things that I don't think the egalitarian, you know, the uh, versus complementarian argument is fundamental. But there is still a very clear thing in Scripture, right and wrong. 
um, you know, the scripture does very clearly say one thing over the other in that regard. It does say, and Paul does say, I do not permit a woman to teach. So while that's not a fundamental thing, it's not a gospel issue, it is still a clear sign of theological liberalism. He's moving away from what the Bible teaches. And that's just something you see when you don't love God, you don't love the world, you move away from the controversial things. John the Baptist did not move away from the controversial things. In fact, he stirred up controversy a lot of the time. He taught repentance. He called people vipers and things like that. And whether or not you agree with that, I don't know, but you know, that's what he did. He, he, called, he said, you're a, you're, you're a brood of vipers. Repent and believe. That's, uh, he preached the exclusivity of the gospel. That's quite controversial. But he did it anyway because he loved God and not himself. And so in those three ways, I think, from the life of John the Baptist, we see how prosperity gospel is a false gospel and it does lead you away from God and not to God. I think the life of John the Baptist perfectly exemplifies everything that's wrong with the prosperity gospel and its effects. Now, I don't know who's listening, but I do know that the power of salvation comes from the true gospel. Not this false gospel or not any other false gospel. In fact, Paul warned the believers, if either us, the apostles, or an angel should come preaching a false gospel, do not believe them. That's how important it is you get the gospel right, is that if an angel comes to you, or an apostle comes to you and says, blah, 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 and you know that's not the gospel, even though they're an apostle, or even though they're an angel, you must disagree with them because they are preaching against the gospel. Because the gospel has more authority than any angel or any person ever could. And the only way to see salvation is to repent and turn of your sins and come to Christ. It is the only way to be saved. There is no other hope apart from that, apart from Christ. As John the Baptist taught and as these prosperity preachers hopefully come to find out soon. Thank you for watching this video. I hope you liked it and found it enjoyable. Most of all, I hope you found it edifying. Please join us next time as we continue the study of the wonderful word of our wonderful God. Thanks for watching. Goodbye. God bless. And Salam August. Gurma Hagat.